My name is Rob, and I am one of the pastors here at McLean. We are thankful that you have joined us for worship this night. Um, As you see on the cover of your worship guide, as we make our way through Holy Week, uh, we are focusing on a theme, a different kind of power. Um, As we look at the events leading up to Jesus' death and his resurrection, last Sunday, Palm Sunday, we looked at a king's entrance, and tonight we come to a king's feast. Our scripture for tonight's sermon is Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. You can find it on page 881 on the Bible in your pew. Uh, You can navigate your way there in your Bible app. You can just simply Google Luke chapter 22 ESV, and you can track along with us. But join us now as we read the word of our God. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. This past week I've spent some time with my sister and my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law has flown planes for for many years, and we were talking about some of the difficulties and dangers when it comes to flying planes, especially small aircraft, personal aircraft. And he said, one of the greatest dangers is that um, your senses can betray you, especially if you're flying over water or if you're flying into weather. Your senses can betray you. It's difficult to judge sometimes what angle you're flying at or what altitude you are flying at. And that's when you need to rely on your instruments. Those, those gauges that give you objective facts about what your angle is and what your altitude is. If you don't do that, the consequences can be devastating. 
And I got to thinking that sometimes life is like that for us. Many times life can be like that in that the danger is our, our senses betray us. Things aren't always what they seem to be or always what they appear to be. Sometimes circumstances get all over us in such a way that we don't know which way is up and which way is down. And we try to make some course corrections, find ourselves crashing into a mountain, whether it's relationally or financially, professionally or spiritually. You see, we need in those times to be checking our instruments. That is, we need to go to our creator's counsel. His, his guidance, his provision for piloting our lives. Even when we look at these last events of Jesus' life, they can often be uh, perplexing, counterintuitive, paradoxical. And so let's pray now and ask that God would help us to understand them and see how they apply to our lives and how they might help us navigate our lives well. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious and merciful God, this night, would you indeed speak to us? We come in from the busyness of the day and from the noise of our city and ask you to shape and fashion us into the likeness of your Son. Reorient our hearts and our minds to your design and your desires. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word, we pray. Amen. Tonight we have before us the the story of a meal, the story of a dinner party, and all of us know something of dinner parties. Many of us have thrown them ourselves. All of us have probably at least attended one, and when it comes to our city, we have some of the grandest dinner parties of all, right? We have inaugural balls that people can go to and attend. We have the White House Correspondence Dinner, otherwise known as the Nerd Prom, that you can go to as well. And then we have that ultimate dinner party, the, the, the state dinner, right, where a, a foreign head of state comes and dines with our president. The state dinner where apparently the attire is not black tie, right, but even a level higher, the attire is white tie, all right, a, a, a level of attire even more formal to which I suppose I would need to wear my nicest tuxedo t-shirt to that, right? My long sleeve one uh, would be appropriate, I am sure. We know something of dinner parties, and the one we look at here, the one in Luke chapter 22, is greater than any dinner party in history, any, greater than any gathering of the famous or the rich or the powerful. You understand this dinner party in Luke chapter 22, and you understand Christianity. You understand these truths here, not just mentally, but if you grasp them with your heart, then you have hope for your sunniest of days and the dark nights of your soul. Because we learn from this feast and the king who hosted all that we need to know for navigating life well. If it helps you to have an outline or for some, some signposts along the way, we're going to look tonight at the plan for the feast, the priority of the feast, and the point of the feast. The plan, the priority, the point. Three Ps. Now, I realize that this past Sunday's sermon had three points that had three Ps, all right? 
We have them again tonight. I'm not making any promises about Good Friday services. You're just going to have to come and find out, all right? The plan for the feast, let us situate ourselves for a moment in where we're at in the last week of Christ's life. He's entered into Jerusalem for the final time. The city is, uh, has thronged. It's teeming with people. Some of them want to crown him king. There's this nationalistic fervor where they want him to be their king and throw off the Roman occupiers. Some want him dead, right? We read that the scribes and the Pharisees, they're busy working to try to create ways to see his life end. And then and we know someone in his inner circle is actively betraying him. And yes, it's a religious tradition right now, but it does seem like a strange time for a dinner party. An odd time to gather together for a dinner. Our passage begins by Luke letting us know that the day of unleavened bread has come. All right, and that's when you make your sacrifice at the temple and then you celebrate this feast. And the whole purpose of this feast is to remember this great act of salvation of God, of, of when the people of God were enslaved in Egypt and he brought them freedom. See, God knew his people's propensity for forgetfulness. And so he commanded that they gather together in community and continually celebrate this feast that they might remember this great act of salvation. So it's time for this feast, and he turns to two of his disciples, Peter and, and John, he says, guys, go into the city and let us prepare this feast. You guys go ahead and prepare this feast for us. And they turn to him and they say, uh, where, where, where do you want us to do that? Right? The, the population of Jerusalem has doubled, if not tripled. People are everywhere. Now, it is custom that uh, the people of Jerusalem were supposed to let the pilgrims have space in their house to celebrate this feast. But you can get the sense behind Peter and John's question, right? He asked them to go and prepare the feast, and they kind of turned to him and, and asked him to say, Say, really? Uh, you are being hunted down. And you want us to go prepare a feast? I mean, um, really, it's, it's the day of, and we didn't call ahead and make reservations, right? The, the open table app's not working right now. How are we supposed to find space right now? Really? Okay, Jesus, what are we supposed to do? And in verses 12 and 13, Jesus gives them very specific instructions. I'm sorry, verses 10 through 12. Jesus gives them very specific and precise instructions. He says, go into a city, go into the city, and there's going to be a man carrying a jar. All right? Now, you need to know, uh, men in this time normally didn't carry water jars, all right? That was for women. That was for servants. So when they saw this guy carrying the water jar, that would have stuck out to them. And they would say, okay, that's our guy. He says, follow that dude into a house, all right? Go into the house that he goes into and then ask the, the master of the house, say, say, the teacher has asked us to come and say, where is the room where we can share the Passover feast together? 
Jesus says, he'll know what you mean, and he'll show you where you're supposed to go. So they do all this, and now look with me at the words of verse 13. It says, and they went and found it just as he told them. The man with the water jar, the master of the house, the upper room, exactly as he said. It might remind you of last Sunday in chapter 19, right? When he came into the city initially, he told the guys what? Go, go find a foal that hadn't been ridden upon. And if someone asks you why you need it, says the master, the Lord has need of it. And in chapter 19, you see those exact same words. That is, they found it just as he told them. You see, what's abundantly clear here is though those things seem like they might be spiraling out of control in the last weeks of Jesus's life, the last days of Jesus's life, and they're going to increasingly appear that way to, to him and to his followers. The reality is Everything is under control. Everything is happening exactly as it was planned. And Jesus knows the plan down to the very smallest of details. Right? Contrary to what Macbeth would have us believe, the life of Jesus and and yours and I's life, that they are not tales told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. No, the life of the only begotten son and the lives of all the adopted sons and daughters of God, they rest under his sovereign rule and reign. Everything is under control and everything is going according to plan. You know, Since we know that things weren't out of control in these, the darkest hours of Jesus' life, we can rest assured that things aren't out of control in the darkest hours of our life. Because we've seen the cross and because we've seen the resurrection, we know that God can redeem and use any event in our life. He can heal any pain we experience in this life now or in life eternal. This This feast puts on display a different kind of power, a power that shows in the midst of chaos there is a plan. And this plan shows that the priority of Christ, the priority of the king, is to be with his people. We can see that that is the priority of the feast because look what he says when he's finally there. When the fellows are all there, they're reclining at the table. There in the upper room, what are his first words? words. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. On this, his final night, what does he want to do? It's not that he engages his lobbyist out there to try to curry favor with the powers that be. It's not that he sends his disciples out to gather intel and try to find out what's going on in the city. No, on this, his final night, he wants to be with his disciples. He wants to share this meal. And that's his MO. That's how Jesus works. We see that here in his final meal. But think about the meals of Jesus. Think about his ministry, how he operates. Even when he begins his ministry, he's where? He's at a wedding feast in Cana. 
right? And they run out of wine. So what does he do? He saves the host from shame and he shows his power by turning water into wine. Another Another meal, think early on in his ministry, he calls Levi to follow him, this tax collector. And where do they go immediately? To his house, to a dinner party, right? And all the religious people are like, hold up, wait a second. Why is he eating with those kinds of people? And Jesus makes it clear. These are the kind of people I've come to be with. Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to be with the sick and the broken. You see it when the masses are around. There's thousands there out. He's teaching them. The disciples are getting worried. They're like, hey, Jesus, it's late. We need to send these people back to get some food. And Jesus isn't having it. He wants to be with them longer. He wants to share a meal with them. And in this meal, show off his power and provision. Even when he's coming to Jerusalem this last time, he goes through Jericho. And there's this short guy up in the tree. Some of you kids know Zacchaeus, right? You sing songs about him, right? So this short guy, Zacchaeus, is up in the tree. Luke tells us in chapter 19 that uh, he was a chief tax collector and he was very rich. We're supposed to uh, read into that, that he's become rich by abusing his power as the, the tax collector, right? Even some of the people grumble, hey, he's a sinner. What does Jesus do when he sees Zacchaeus? Well, first, what does he not do? He doesn't march up to the tree and say, hey, Zacchaeus, you tiny thief, get your tail down here, all right? And you stop stealing, you do right. He doesn't do that, does he? But Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on, come on down. Let's go hang at your house. Let's go spend some time together. Right? Jesus wants to be with him. He wants to be with Zacchaeus. And in being with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is changed. He stops doing wrong and starts doing what is right. We see in this last meal, we see in these words as it begins that Jesus wants to be with his people. He wants to be with his disciple. And tonight, please hear me, more than anything else in your life, Jesus wants to be with you. This is the heart of the Christian life. This is the heart of discipleship. Yes, there is doing in Christianity, but that flows from being with Jesus. All right, high school students here tonight, what you need to do more than anything else is be with Jesus. Right, yes, you need to honor him in your relationships, And on your sports teams, and and don't worship or make an idol out of academics or popularity. But those things will take care of themselves if you will be with Jesus. If you'll spend time in his word and in prayer and with his people, those things will take care of themselves. Parents, singles, uh, those uh, young at heart but advanced in years. The same is true for you as well. The starting point for navigating the dynamics of all of those life stages is being with Jesus. Let me ask you, what's your plan for being with Jesus tomorrow? 
Right? You can spend time in his word that he's given to us. You can spend time in prayer. We've prepared devotionals for you that you can find outside there to help you to meet with Jesus. You can meet with Jesus in fun times. You can, uh, after the best day of vacation that you had on spring break, you know, you can just put your arms around your kids and say, let's just thank Jesus for all that we experienced today. And when you've royally messed up in your relationship with a loved one, you can be with Jesus there too. You can go to them and ask for forgiveness and ask Jesus to bring hope and healing and joy and sorrows. We're called to be with Jesus and run to him. Because it is easy to get disoriented. Our senses betray us. And we can think that Christianity is about doing, not being. Right? And the haunting words of Jesus at the end of this passage and the life of Judas show us that it's possible to seemingly do stuff for Jesus and be around Jesus and around the things of Jesus, but never really be with Jesus. Make sure that you are with your Savior. Run to Him spend time to him. Jesus' plan is unfolding. Its priority is to be with his people and enjoy this feast this night. And this feast has a purpose or a point to it. And the point to this feast is that he actually wants to show his disciples the links that he'll go to to be with them. And he wants to make sure that they'll never forget it. And so we see here in in these verses an account of Jesus instituting this sacramental meal. He he takes the Passover feast, right? They're there celebrating the Passover feast. And he says to his disciples, actually, this feast and the event that it celebrates points to a true and greater rescue. The rescue out of slavery in Egypt points to a rescue from sin and death. And if the the history of Israel, if the history of the people of God had taught Jesus anything, it's that their capacity for forgetfulness and ungratefulness really knows no bounds. Time and again, throughout their history, throughout this book, they forget God's faithfulness and they turn their backs on him. Jesus knows you and I have this same struggle. Jesus knows that daily you and I battle with forgetfulness and ungratefulness. The the Russian author uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in his uh, novel Notes uh, from the Underground uh, an account or an estimation of the nature of man. He he says these words, if he is not stupid, speaking of, of men, of man, if he is not stupid, he is monstrously ungrateful, phenomenally ungrateful grateful. In fact, I believe the best definition of man is ungrateful biped. You know, when you speak words that hurt, kids, when you speak words uh, that hurt to your siblings, parents, when you speak words that hurt to your kids, um, it's because you've forgotten the love you have in Christ. And the grace that he's shown you. Um, Men, when you look lustfully at another woman that's not your wife, it's because you've forgotten. 
because you've forgotten that um, the pleasure that you think you can find in her pales in comparison to the God who says he opens up his hands and satisfies the desires of every living thing. When you work yourself ragged, neglecting your family, or compromising your integrity at work to get ahead, it's because you've forgotten, you've been ungrateful for all that God's already provided, all that you already have in Christ, and you've forgotten that there's not enough possessions in the world to fill that God-shaped void in your heart. And yes, Jesus wants to be with you, but our rebellion and brokenness keeps us from him, Our forgetfulness and ungratefulness does. And so what does he do? He gives us this. He gives us this meal to share together. That we might come together and community and continually be reminded, reoriented in our hearts and in our minds. He says, do this right here. Do this in remembrance of me because I know how forgetful you are. You see, this meal, it's an acted parable that takes us back and reminds us of all that Christ has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. If you're new here tonight, if you're exploring Christianity, or maybe you're wanting a way uh, to talk about it with your friends, there are two words in here that give us great insight into the heart of Christianity. And those words are for you. For you. See them there in verses 19 and 20. This is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That is the promises way back in Jeremiah have come true about a new heart and a new internal reality. Because I shed my blood, this is for you. You see, Christianity is not about what do I have to do for God, but Christianity is about what God has done for you and for me. He wants to be with us, but our rebellion and our betrayal has separated us. So Jesus lives the life we should have lived. He lives that life for you and for me. He dies the death we should have died. His body broken, his blood shed for you and for me. Let's finish by looking at this table. You see, on this table there is bread and juice. (laughs) The bread and the cup. Nothing on this table points to anything you have done, anything you have accomplished, anything you have achieved or contributed to it. When you experience this meal, all you do is receive. That's the gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. All you need when you come to this table is to admit your need and accept his grace. You see, we learn from this feast, we learn from this meal that the king who instituted it wants to be with us. And if you trust in his work, then you're in, you're invited, you're accepted, you're approved. You have the treasure. And the enemy of your soul in this fallen world and in this broken flesh would like nothing more than for you to forget that or for you to drift away from that. 
And so that's why we come again and again to this table. To be reminded of what he's done for us and to be with our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that from all eternity you planned to bring your salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you that your priority, your desire is to be with your people. Though you reign and rule over the universe, you condescend to know us and to be with us. Would you impress these truths on our souls this night? Would we be changed by being with your son and to know the hope and salvation that is found in him? Help us to accept this grace and to know the peace that comes from a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.